Well, as we come to the text this morning, if you have a Bible, I'll invite you to open it uh, on your on your device or your copy, whatever you got in front of you, uh, to First Peter. We've been walking through First Peter verse by verse, as uh, Steve reminded us. Uh, there's a reason we do that, because if I got to choose, I probably wouldn't preach passages like this one because they're a little prickly. Uh, but we do that because we believe the whole of Scripture has something to say to us, and God still speaks through all of us, through all of it. Uh, at the beginning of the service, I said that we want to anticipate and expect that God has something to say. And, and I hope that, that you're still hanging on to that anticipation. Maybe, maybe, hopefully, God did say something to you through the music, but don't check out and be like, wow, he already said it here. I don't have to listen to Sean. Maybe I'll listen again when Steve comes back up and he'll speak to me through music again. But I just kind of want to bring that idea to the forefront of our minds because this passage this morning is radically countercultural, as much of the Bible turns out to be, isn't it? And as I was preparing, I came across uh, something that Charles Spurgeon wrote some time ago, some time ago, a couple hundred years ago, as he was reflecting on uh, a passage from Psalm 119, and, and maybe you've heard it. Uh, Psalm 119, where he says, uh, Your word is a lamp, uh, a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And Spurgeon is, is one that's known as the Prince of Preachers, which is quite a title to get. Uh, and so I thought it would be worth uh, sharing this this morning as we come to this text and prepare our hearts to receive what God might say to us through this text. He says this, Thy, thy word is a lamp unto my feet. We are all walkers to the city of this world, and we're often called to go out into its darkness. Let us never venture there without the light-giving word, lest we slip with our feet. Each one of us should use the word of God personally, practically, and habitually, so that we may see his way and what lies in it. When darkness settles down upon around me, the word of the Lord, like a flaming torch, reveals my way. Having no fixed lamps in eastern towns, in old times, a passenger, each passenger, carried a lantern with them so that they might not fall into an open sewer or stumble over the dung which defiled the roads. He's writing in a time before cars, so they were horse-drawn characters, and it got a little messy. He says, this is a true picture of our path through this dark world. We should not know the way or how to walk in it if Scripture like a blazing flambeau did not reveal it. One of the most practical benefits of the Holy Writ is guidance in the acts of daily life. It is not sent to astound us with its brilliance, but guide us by its instruction. It's true that the head needs illumination, but even more that the feet need direction, else the head and feet may both fall into a ditch. So he says, happy is the one who personally appropriates and receives God's word and practically uses it as a comfort and a counselor, a lamp to their feet. I was struck this past week again just how much the, the wisdom of our world, the wisdom of our culture, the, the, the truth, the, the things that are true, that our culture tells us are true, is just constantly moving, constantly shifting. And in some ways, that's a positive thing. We are developing, we are, we are growing, we are learning new things about how to, to relate to one another, how the world works, and how we can best live in the world. Yet at the same time, we as a culture have, have, have so much kind of 
uh, rejected or set aside God, that it's almost funny that researchers studying things like human flourishing are finding truths that God has revealed to us in his Bible. This, this brand new study says, hey, if we live this way, things will go better for us. And the follower of Jesus might say, yeah, that's an exodus. Yeah, G- Jesus taught us that 2,000 years ago. It's remarkable. And so as we open up to 1 Peter, I pray that we would continue to grow in our understanding and our confidence in the Bible as a lamp to our feet, the, the directing light for our lives. Now, we've been here for a couple of months in 1 Peter, uh, and it really is a letter that deals with living kind of on the outskirts or the outside of culture, uh, living as a stranger or an exile in your own hometown, and even uh, finding and experiencing suffering because of that. And yet within this letter, Peter is it just, he's a, he's a brilliant pastor, and his pastoral heart comes out where he, he speaks these truths of, yes, you will feel rejected, but it's going to be okay because you've got Jesus. He tells us to, to understand and, and even lean into that stranger mentality because we're living in this world, but we're looking to the next because of all that Jesus has done for us. And in this book, we've been giving, uh, given marching orders too. And for the last couple of weeks, we've, we've used the language of, of how does our Christian life look? Well, we live like an exile. We, we understand and embrace are, are the reality that we live as, as exiles or strangers in this culture because we live a countercultural life. We, we fight like a soldier. We fight against sin like a soldier. We recognize that Jesus has conquered and defeated sin on the cross, but the presence of sin still exists in the world. So we live like an exile. We fight sin like a soldier, and we behave like an ambassador or a representative. All of our actions tell about what's most important to us. So if we say Jesus is most important to us, every action of every single day reveals that to people around us. And last week, we looked at how those three things relate to matters of authority. How do we understand that and live under a government that may or may not be following Jesus? Whether that's a national government, a provincial government, a local government, and he'll get it even kind of narrower down as we continue forward. But today, Peter's going to take that and lean into the issue of suffering. So let me ask you this. When someone treats you poorly, what's your first instinct? When someone uh, cuts you off in traffic, when someone doesn't give you the time of day when you go to a shop, when, when someone speaks words that are just like thorns and just pierce your heart, when those things happen, how do you react? I can tell you for me, often, it's in one of the two typical ways we, that we might all be familiar with. Either uh, I'll, I'll tend towards that, that fight response where I'll get all riled up and I'll fire back with my own words. I'm knowledgeable enough about who I am that like a physical fight will not go well for me so I don't get there. But I can let fly with my words if I choose. Or more likely, I'll forget the fight and I'll just flight, right? So that's it. We either fight or flight typically. And so I'll kind of kind of shut down the conversation, close myself off, remove myself from the situation, but you can bet that I got fighting words in my head as I walk away. 
And I don't think that I'm alone in this. When, when someone hurts me, my first instinct is justice. I want justice. I want them to get theirs. And that's not a good thing. Let me get, make, make that clear. The same thing kind of happens when, when, when I find in my life that I, that I bump into some kind of roadblock or inconvenience. Ultimately, I don't, I don't really like hard things. I've got a, a, a wonderful plan for my life, and when something gets in the way of that plan, I, I'm put out by it. But if we believe with Spurgeon and the psalmist that God's will illuminates our head but also guides our feet, then when we walk through a dark world, we will each face suffering. That's just the reality. It doesn't matter if you like it, we'll face it. So look how Peter introduces this, su- this subject to us. 1 Peter 2, verse 18. He says, Servants, be subject or submit to your masters with all respect. Now some of our translations take that word servants and use the word slave instead. And so this is one of the most prickly passages in all of 1 Peter, so we need to sit on that word for just a minute. When you and I hear the word slave, often, probably usually, where our minds go is to like the transatlantic uh, slave trade, slavery in the U.S. and Canada and in Europe as well, right? That's kind of, that's kind of where we go, usually. It may even go to, to, to modern-day slavery, which is as prevalent as it, was, as it ever has been in the past. But that's not what the picture Peter is painting here. In the Roman Empire, approximately a third of the population would have fit into this class, the class of, of slave or servant class. And there is a, a huge difference between being a first century slave or servant and being uh, a more modern one, and that in those days it wasn't necessarily permanent. That wasn't your, your lot in life for your entire life. Many people actually voluntarily chose to put themselves into slavery or to become a household servant so that after a time of working really hard and good behavior and earning a living as well, they could buy themselves out of slavery and even become full Roman citizens, which is a huge deal in the first century. Often as well, or typically, slaves would hold a similar status to their masters in those days. So if you were in the home of a a government official, you'd be ranked a little higher than if you were in the home of someone else. So like it was much different. Many chose to to hire themselves out as servants or slaves uh, as a form of job security because they knew I'll have a place to live, I'll have work to do, as opposed to just trying to go from place to place and scratch out a living, cutting lawns in the summer and shoveling grass in the winter, not sure how the season's going to go. Okay? And they weren't necessarily all blue-collar workers either. One historian notes that the doctors, teachers, writers, accountants, agents, bailiffs, overseers, secretaries, and sea, captain, sea captains all were a part of this slave population. And so it's, it's, it's vastly different. Now, were they always treated well? No. Were they always treated even humanly? No. But they were often considered to be part 
of the household, even considered family. Okay, so there's, there's a difference here between the first century and our time. The second thing we need to address is that often people will take a verse like this and again, take 2022 Canmore or Canada, point to this text and say, look, the Bible is pro-slavery. How dare you believe that? Because they've taken our time and read it into a 2,000-year-old text. This is the danger of cherry-picking verses. We can all cherry-pick verses to make them say whatever we want, but it's wrong. If we consider the whole story of the Bible, if we have even a, a, a bit of familiarity with, with the, the narrative of the gospel and going from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation and the story that, that's in there, where do people get their value from? The Bible says every single person is equal in value, because not because they're good or bad or whatever, but because God has created them in his image. That's it. There's an equality there. And when culture and people, sinful people, mess that up, that doesn't mean it no longer exists. Throughout the Bible, people are given radical, equal value. That's the norm. Another thing to, to note is if at the outset of the New Testament, as the church started growing, even as we, you know, we read in Acts that Peter preached and 3,000 came, and a little bit later he preached again and another few thousand came, even at that point with you know, 10, 15, 20,000 believers, if the new church had decided, okay, not only are we going to preach this new gospel, which is important, and we'll, we'll go to jail and we'll die for the gospel, but if we're also going to take on the system of Rome at the same time, Rome would have crushed it in an instant, just like they went into Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. Okay, so there, there, there's a, a piece of, of working within the system for the building of the kingdom which is actually what Peter talked about last week. There's also a whole book in the Bible, a letter in the Bible, Philemon, where Paul writes to a master and says, listen, you had a household servant. He fled. He's with me. He's a Christian now, just like you. Treat him like a brother. That's what you do. That's the norm. We need to recognize as well that, that often the Bible is being descriptive and not prescriptive. We've got to understand that difference. Sometimes it's describing the situation, not prescribing what it should look like in every situation. Really kind of simple example that's maybe at the forefront of our minds. If we open up to Genesis 1 and God kind of creates the world and sets the rules in place and he creates man and woman, and what does he do for marriage? He says, here's marriage, one man and one woman. Well, we get what? A few chapters in, and we see a man with many wives. Does that mean Genesis 1 is no longer valid because Abraham had many wives? Absolutely not. It means Abraham messed up. It's being descriptive, not prescriptive. So when Peter says, servants, slaves, submit to your masters, he's not saying we should all have slaves. He's saying, this is the time we're in. This is what it looks like now. The principle applies. Submit to your authority, because that authority ultimately comes from God. We should also say, as we think about the more modern slave trade, most, many, if not most, of the drivers of the abolition of slavery were followers of Jesus. 
who read the Bible and said, this is no good. Did Christians get it wrong? Absolutely. Absolutely. And many people are happy to point that out. But whether it's William Wilberforce, whether it's the Acts 21 of freeing sex slaves, Christians, building on the Bible, because every person is valuable, because they've been created in the image of God. Okay? That was a long side. But again, it's, it's a pretty prickly verse, and it's one that's pointed out, so I think that was important. So here's Peter wading into this again. Household slaves or servants, submit to your masters with all reverence, not only to the good and gentle ones, but also to the cruel. Peter just never lets up. Now he recognizes that he's calling these, these guys to something that's hard, right? Uh, be good to the ones, not if, just if they're good for you, but there will be unjust masters. And you've got to submit to them too. There will be even evil ones. And in that sense, we've got to submit to them too. And this word submit is, man, it's just full of prickles here, this passage, isn't it? Paul, Peter keeps coming back to it. We saw it last week. We see it this week. We'll see it next week. Submit, submit, submit. This is not a, the end, at the end of an MMA fight when you've got my ankle behind my ear and my hand up this way and I tap out and submit. That's not what we're talking about here. This is a willing submission. This is a, a voluntary, voluntary obeying your master. Now, this is a huge piece of this section in this chapter, this willing submission. It's really easy for me to respect and submit my boss if they're good to me, right? Way easier. If my boss treats me well, I'm happy to do whatever he or she asks, usually. But what do we do when our bosses aren't good, when they're not kind? Uh, a number of years ago, uh, when I was going to university, I worked at a mill in Edmonton. Uh, I was part-time, so I kind of got slotted in during the week to whatever uh, full-time shift needed a grunt often. Uh, and so I got to work with, with all the foremen, all the leaders, all the bosses on different days. And some of them were, they were really good. They were kind. They always got up on the right side of the bed. They were happy to, happy to be at work. You're not always happy to be at work, but you know, they, they, were, they were good. Others had a reputation for being grumpy, as some of us have. And some of the guys that I worked with, they were more than happy to just sort of mail it in for the grumpy guys. You think quiet quitting is something that's new? No, man, we've been quiet quitting for 30 years. If you treat me bad, I will do the bare minimum, if that. Right? Now, I'd, I'd like to think that most days, I worked my best regardless with, of who told me where to go and how to get there and what to clean and where to throw it. And I know... I know that because I did that, some of those hard-nosed bosses treated me well and actually weren't all that bad. We know this. It doesn't matter who tells us what to do. It's hard, but it's worth it. What Peter's saying here is in those moments of injustice, when you are submitting to the cruel master even, your responsibility is to live submissively to the authority of God, even as it's being expressed in the brokenness of an unjust leader, and do what's good. Respect those who aren't just gentle and good, but respect and honor those who are unjust as well. Let's see, 
heads us into suffering, have you ever asked yourself the question, why do I suffer? Why do I struggle? You know, I, I work hard. I'm a pretty good person. I do some good things. I avoid some bad things. Why is suffering even a part of my life? Is, is it possible, maybe, maybe throw this, I'll try this out on you. Is it possible that we believe we deserve better than suffering? But we look at others and like, oh, man, they messed up. They deserve it, but not me. When I start to, to, to look at hard times that way, when I look at it, I understand that we go through suffering, but why, sh why should I? My own kind of ego and, and self-righteousness gets exposed, doesn't it? It's as though I'm saying, I, I'm, I'm too good for any of this. And the way I look at myself and my life really doesn't look the same as the way God looks at me and my life. And so Peter will use the topic of suffering to drive this home. He's going to give us three important principles on suffering. And here's the first. If you follow Jesus, as you follow Jesus, you will suffer. You have been called to suffering. This is inescapable throughout the New Testament. Jesus promised it in the Gospel of John, didn't he? So if you ever are uh, speaking with someone or you hear somebody saying, listen, follow Jesus and all your problems will go away, run. They're not talking about this Jesus. Because Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. Right? Suffering, when we encounter suffering and hardship, it's not a failure of God's plan. It doesn't get in the way of God's plan. It's not forgetting what, it's not God forgetting what he promised us. And it's not him being unfaithful to us. Suffering is actually part of God's plan for his people. And Peter explains it. We find it elsewhere in the New Testament as well. Peter explains it a bit, starting in verse 19. He says, For it brings favor if because of a consciousness of God, someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. For what credit is it? Uh, what credit is there if you do wrong and are beaten and you endure it? But when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, it brings favor with God. For you are called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in His steps. So when we live as representatives for Jesus and for His kingdom, suffering will find us. Sometimes. We suffer the consequences of our own decisions, our own rebellion, our own sin, our own foolishness. As one writer says, we all have a great ability to complicate our own lives. Sometimes what we call persecution or suffering isn't persecution at all. It's, it's the consequence of our own Christian arrogance or pride or self-righteousness. It's, it's us being a jerk and then people not liking us for that. That's not what Peter's talking about. Peter is saying that that, that suffering is a gracious thing or it brings favor when, when we're just doing our best to follow Jesus and people don't like it. And if we want to find that grace, he's, he's addressed it for us a few times. He's reminded us that, that if we're committed to following Jesus, you know what? We will live like strangers and aliens and exiles. And, and it may cost my reputation. It may cost possessions. It may even cost physical suffering but it's going to be worth it because I get to be with Jesus. And he's told us, and he'll continue to remind us, that, that suffering can be used by God if we let him. Sometimes, again, maybe it's just me, maybe you can identify with this, 
when I see a hard thing coming, or if I step into something that looks hard, my natural tendency and desire is to quit. Leave that hard thing for someone else. And I'll just kind of float my own way. What if we looked at some of these hard things and said, okay, God's going to do something in me through this. He promises that, right? James talks about that right in the beginning of James. Perseverance and endurance and these things build a life that, that follows Jesus. Suffering can be used by God because it helps us see where the end of us is, right? Going through a hard thing, walking through the valley of the shadow of death, as the, the psalmist says, lets us know where the end of my strength and my energy and my wisdom and my smarts and my gifts and my abilities all is. And it's only there where I can say, okay, Jesus, I need you because I cannot do this. It reminds us that we're not in control, but we serve one who is in control. Finally, our, our, our suffering can actually be a witness to the world. When the world sees us go through hard things, not just dodge hard things, and grow because of that, again, it shows them that we're not in control, but we serve one who is. Any of these ring true? Hopefully. Have you noticed that some of the hard things we go through actually wind up being God's grace to us? There's things that, that, that we can learn no other way than going through something hard and having to trust God and lean on God to get through it. Sometimes we don't see that in the midst of it. Sometimes it takes even a few months or years removed from a situation to be able to look back and say, oh yeah, that's what God is doing. The second thing that, that Peter says in this passage that we really just can't miss First is that we will suffer. We're called to suffering. The second thing comes in verse 21. Says, Again, you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example and you should follow in his footsteps. He didn't commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he didn't insult in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. So we're called to suffer, but Jesus is our example in suffering. This is just such sweet pastoral wisdom from Peter here. He says to us, Jesus is our perfect example. He reminds us that, that Jesus committed no sin. Suffering doesn't change the rules. Just because we've now run into a hard time, that doesn't change how God wants us to live our lives. It doesn't give us permission to live in a way that God didn't call us to. In fact, when we suffer, because we will, when we go through hard things, it's more important for us to, to stick to what we know we believe instead of let our emotions and our attitudes and our circumstances steer the way we think life should be going. An example. If you're feeling under the weather, gentlemen, if you've had a man cold, you know what I'm talking about. The world, like, ladies just don't understand the man cold. I don't know, like, I wish I could describe it better, but it, like, when that hits, does every person around you know you're not feeling well? Right? Does the suffering of the runny nose and the tickle in your throat just mean your spouse knows you're upset, your kids don't want to come close to you, and at the office they like close your door for you so you stay, they stay away from you, right? Does everyone know you're having a bad day? You just kind of let what you know to be true out, fly out the door? It's maybe a silly example, but you'll remember it. 
And Peter says, that's no good. It's no good. When we start to experience hardships or suffering, whether it's a cold or something worse, look at Jesus. Look at what he went through. In the midst of his betrayal, in the midst of his being abandoned, in the midst of his being called horrible names by people around him, and even a false accusation, arrest, beating, and death on a cross, he did not sin. The rules didn't change. And not only that, maybe if we've been around church, we know, of course, Jesus didn't sin. He went through this stuff. He didn't sin. He didn't lie ever. He didn't tell a half-truth or a white lie or, or just sort of leave out the occasional detail in the, in the story so that people thought better of him. He didn't shoot back insults when people insulted him. And he got called horrible things. He didn't threaten. He didn't demand justice right now. And he didn't mete out his own justice in the moment. But he trusted that there was one true judge and at the right time, that judge, his father, God the Father, would judge rightly and justly. And as it always is, when we look at Jesus as our example, it's really easy to just throw up our hands and be like, well, he's Jesus, I'm not. But there's grace. And that's the third thing that Peter wants us to know. We will suffer. Jesus is our example, but Jesus is also our substitute. Verse 24, he, bore, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that, having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseers of your soul. Sometimes some of these familiar phrases, we just let them run off our back. Like, heard that, know the song. This is so sweet. Here's what Peter does. He knows that sometimes we need to be humbled a little bit, need to be knocked down a peg or two, and then sometimes one more after that. And he says, listen, you guys know the standard. You can't do it. He says, Jesus bore your sins on his body on the tree. He went to the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. It was his wounds that gave you peace. This is one of the, the clearest gospel statements in all the New Testament. And it is the absolute center and heart of the church's message. And it might not seem to fit here. If Peter's talking about, in last week's passage, how we relate to authority, and in this week's passage he's talking about suffering, why all of a sudden are we looking at the cross? What's he doing? One writer helpfully explains to, it, to us this way. He says, yes, we'll struggle in suffering. But the deepest struggle that we have in suffering isn't, in fact, that we're suffering. Instead, it's our sin. Because it's the sin inside of you that causes you to make such a mess of the difficulty that's outside of you. Peter's saying, you don't, don't you understand that your greatest problem in life isn't your suffering? Your greatest problem in life is sin. That's the thing that destroys and complicates your life. And that sin will complicate moments of blessing and moments of suffering. The greatest need that any one of us could ever have is dealing with our own sin. And that need has been dealt with by Jesus on the cross. And so when we have moments of suffering, because sin is all around us, and in us, defeated by Jesus but still present, 
when we have moments of suffering, we can experience grace, we can experience victory, and we can endure all things because of Jesus' work on the cross. And don't miss this in verse 24 as well. Peter says he bore our sins in his body on the tree so that, having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. Now, if you've been around Trinity before and you've heard me preach uh, more than a couple of times probably, you know that whenever I come across a word like therefore, we always stop. And we know that when we see therefore, we ask the question, what's the therefore, therefore? We can't skip it. Skip it. We're learning here. But it's just as important for us to look for other little key indicator words like this. Like if we see an if and then statement. If this happens, then that happens. We've got to pay attention to the ifs and the thens. If we see a but, we've got to stop and say, okay, what's happening that the, that the writer needs to put a but in here? I, <laughs> I've already giggled to myself. I was a youth pastor for a number of years, and you've heard me say it too, but in front of the students for sure, I would regularly say, but is my favorite word in the Bible. And I'll be like, she said but. They'll remember it though, right? They will definitely remember to look for buts in the Bible. Because it's important, right? Because it always tells us this one thing is true, but now in light of what Jesus has done, this is the new reality. Add to the list, so you've got therefores, you've got if-thens, you've got buts. Add to the list, so that, like we see right here. Whenever we find a so that, there's a bit of a purpose statement coming. There's a mission statement. There's a, there's a, a calling and a commissioning coming. So we could look at this verse here and we could read it like this. Jesus bore our sins on his body so that, not for fun, but in order that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. Why did Jesus go to the cross? So we could die for sin, die to sin and live in righteousness. Here's what Peter's doing. Often, when we think about the gospel, when we think about Jesus dying on the cross, we picture it this way. We think, why did Jesus die on the cross? He said, well, he died for our sins, right? Okay. That happened when? 2,000 years ago. We've got this historical event. We cling to it. We believe it. It's true. Great. Then we think, well, Jesus died on the cross for what? So I can go to heaven. When does that happen? Hopefully not for a while, unless Jesus comes back. But sometime in the future, right? So very often we take the gospel message and we limit it to there, the past and the future. But Peter's saying, I want your now too. He's reminding us of the nowism of the gospel. He's not just saying, yes, Jesus died for your sins, and yes, you'll go be with him. But this changes how we live today. We die to sin and live for righteousness. He's saying, Jesus shed his blood so that in your suffering, in your difficult moments, in the struggles and all the things that happen in this world, you have the power to say no to sin and do what's right. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Suffering actually preaches the gospel. Because in those moments, I know that I cannot muster up right responses. I know that I don't have the strength to will myself through all the suffering I run into. I know it's all beyond me. And I know that if there's no Jesus and if there's no cross, there's no hope. Because I can't do it. And you can't do it for me. And we can't do it together even. But, there it is again. There is a Jesus. And there is a cross. And Jesus died so that I can say no to envy. That I can say no to lust. 
that I can say no to gluttony, that I can say no to alcoholism, that I can say no to anger, no to doubt, no to fear, no to jealousy, no to vengeance, and I can do what's right, not because I'm righteous, but because Jesus is righteous. By his wounds, I'm healed. And then he wraps up and says, because you are all like sheep going astray. You're trying to go out at it yourself. You're trying to do things yourself. You're, you're trying to even do good stuff. But now because of him, he's brought you back in and you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. I don't know who needs to hear this this morning, but I, I have in the past and I will again. We are never alone in our suffering because Jesus has drawn us to himself and he has promised I will always be with you. There's no situation, no location, no circumstance, no relationship that's outside of his shepherding care. Let me wrap up with this. I alluded to it earlier, but we're going to wrap, flip back in our Bibles to Psalm 23. And let me just read it over us. So Peter just called, again, Jesus, our shepherd and overseer. This is a, probably the most famous shepherding text. David writes, The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the quiet waters. He renews my life. He restores my soul. Even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger because you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You anoint my head with oil. And only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for your shed blood, for your broken body, and for the wounds that you received that were for our forgiveness and for our deliverance and for our healing. Jesus, if there's anyone here who's listening that has yet to trust you, has never trusted you, anyone who's still trying to live by their own strength, I pray that in this moment you would reveal yourself to them, that they would abandon those things and find hope in your cross and know your forgiveness and give their hearts to you. And for those who have already done that, would you remind us again and again and again of all that you've done and help us to celebrate your transforming grace in our lives. Jesus, thank you that you can use all things, our blessings, our sufferings, our, our hard things, to make us more like you. Help us to, to know and understand that because you died, we have the ability to live righteous lives. And help us to know and understand that you are our good shepherd and the overseer of our souls. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.